0: Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you today. I want to thank uh, our team, all of our musicians. It's beautiful, amen? Wow, I am so excited. We're going to get to hear uh, from our choir again at the end of the service today, so I'm really looking forward to that and uh, just so appreciative of all the hard work that everyone has put in uh, this time of year. At this time, as you see, children, you can be dismissed to head downstairs. I want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas, and uh, this is a great time to be together as a faith community, as a church. Uh, People say it is the most wonderful time of the year, and indeed, that's because we get to celebrate the birth of our Savior, the Savior of the world, Jesus, and we celebrate that together, and so I'll be praying for all of you as you join around Uh, tables and fellowship this Christmas holiday, uh, that Jesus will be at the front and center of your celebrations together. Well, we've been traveling through this season of Advent, and we've been spending a lot of time talking about the different ideals that go along with Advent. We've spent time talking about great hope. We talked about great peace and great joy and We've been looking at how God is fulfilling his promises to us in the person of Jesus. And how Jesus gives the people of God today, his church, great cause for these ideals. We have great cause for hope and great cause for peace and great cause for joy. We've explored the meaning of these concepts and we've uh, discussed how Jesus in his life embodied Each of these ideals, and we've sought to learn from the example of Emmanuel, God with us. Today, we turn our attention to love. And it was uh, 2001, I believe. If I'm wrong, I'll be corrected later today, I'm sure. But I think it was 2001. I uh, took a job at a local summer camp uh, where I had never worked before. And I arrived for our staff training. And at our staff training, we were to go and to be out in a field where we were going to play a game to get to know the other staff members better. And it was in that field, on that faithful summer day where I looked across the circle, and I saw a beam of radiant light. Her name was Sheila. (laughs) Love. It was love at first sight. And I remember, uh, in those moments, we had not known each other. We had never met before. Uh, She was from the northern end of the county, a place where I very infrequently ever desired to go. Uh, and I was from the southern end of the county where all the good things take place. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Sorry. Sorry, you northerners. Sorry, I didn't mean that. But she went to Mannheim Central. <sighs> Sorry. It's okay. We used to have a blanket. We don't have it anymore. I told her I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't do it. <laughs> All of a sudden, uh, I found myself just captured by this young lady. And though we did not know each other, and our paths had never crossed, uh, it became uh, kind of like a mission of mine to be in her presence everywhere she was. I wanted to be where she was, and so I would find myself trying to structure my day Uh, kind of playing this game like you've heard of where's Waldo, where's Sheila, where is she going to be? And I want to find her and make sure that I can kind of accidentally run into her in those locations. And so I'd see her going down to do her laundry and I'd be like, oh, well, my laundry needs done too. So I would, I, I hate doing laundry and I lived like 10 minutes away. I could have taken it home, but you know what? If she was doing her laundry... I wanted to be doing mine. I pursued her uh, because I just wanted to be with her and to be in her presence. And today, we turn our attention to what has proven throughout the history of Christianity to be one of the, if not the greatest guiding standard for all of our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions This morning, we explore why the birth of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, gives his people cause for great love. And to be sure, this morning, I want to make sure we all know so we don't have unrealistic expectations, I will not say all there is to say about this topic. This is a massive topic. Rather, as we move through our text this morning... We're going to hope to pull a few morsels out that will give us insight into answering the following three questions. And we're going to kind of circle around these three questions this morning. Question one. How does God communicate and demonstrate his love for us in the sending of his son? Question two. Why did Jesus need to be born in the manner that he was? And finally, What does it mean for God's people, the church, to be identified as co-heirs with Christ Jesus? We'll spend the greatest volume of our time this morning exploring Paul's text in Galatians 4, which will provide us some insights into answering each of these three questions. So if you have your Bibles, you want to take them now and turn to Galatians chapter 4. It's in the New Testament, after the Gospels. Before Ephesians, the book of Galatians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 to 7 today. Before we enter our text, let's take a moment and ask God to bless our time together in our study. Father, we gather this morning as a people with full hearts that can rejoice because Messiah has been born Christ, the Savior, is born. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And we are thankful. And so we gather as a people around your word today in this very corporate activity where we will open uh, this truth that you have left for us. And together we will study it and endeavor to find what you would have for us, helping us to grow. Lord, we want to grow in our love for you We want to grow in the ways and the means by which we come to love one another and the people that you've drawn into our communities, into our atmospheres. We give you the glory for how you're working even now, what your spirit is doing in the midst of this study. We pray that he would go forth and apply to each one exactly what you would intend for this time. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Galatians 4, 1 to 7. This is Paul speaking to the church in Galatia. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is an owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In the book of Galatians, Paul is writing to a group of Christians who desire to place themselves under the guardianship of the law. The Christians who had converted from within Judaism, they were actually desiring to remain under the law in Galatia. While the Gentile believers in Galatia had been so influenced by the Jews in their region that they were desiring to join with Israel and follow the law. Paul was not happy with the desires of either one of these groups. One of his primary aims in this letter is to really help the law loving people of God to recognize the insufficiency of the law and to move us towards a more life giving understanding of the sufficiency of Jesus. Friends, it is in Christ alone where one finds righteousness and justification before God. The law is both insufficient and incapable of producing life. And while there were some Jews in Galatia who would have considered themselves to be heirs, Paul is making sure that they understand that they are truly no different than a Gentile who was without Christ. All of us are enslaved to the cosmic forces of sin and death. All of us have sinned and the law, as good of a guardian as it may have been, was unable and is unable to set us free. Friends, the law cannot free us. And so our imaginations become formed around this rather difficult dilemma that emerges. For those who are not yet in Christ. In the law, we have a guardian or a manager, one who's able to describe and expose sin in a way that proves that we are all guilty while also defining the eternal consequence for that sin as death. And while the law is performing its task dutifully, it's unable to provide a solution to the problem it reveals. And so this... Leaves us in a very difficult place. One that Paul describes in his letter to Ephesians, where he says, This we were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, and without God in the world. Wow. It's pretty a desperate circumstance. What was needed was someone who could serve as a once and for all solution to our problems of sin and death and while the world lay in the state of hopelessness god was working out through jesus the eternal plan to save his people and so how does god communicate and demonstrate his love towards us in the sending of his son in sending Jesus, God's reminding us that he's not some far-off cosmic Grinch God. We all know the Grinch. We watch it this time of year. That is not the image of God that the Bible portrays or depicts. Yet there are some in our culture and our world today that see God and would desire for his people to see him in This image. But this is not who God is. Rather, we come to find that his love takes up residence and dwells among us. As the prophet Jeremiah spoke in chapter 31 of his prophecy, our God is a God who has loved his people with an everlasting love. It is a love by which he is patiently and compassionately drawn us unto himself. But it's also a love whereby he moves himself into community with us right where we are. I think back to that time at Black Rock where I was getting to know Sheila. There would have been no way... For us to form our relationship, to build our relationship, to truly get to know one another. Unless we would have been in one another's presence together. God comes to us. And though we were a people without hope and without God in the world. God was determined to not be without us. And Paul moves us towards this reality in verse 4. And we're reminded that Christmas is a time when we proclaim with great joy the truth of Emmanuel, God with us. Look again at verse 4. He's building here tension. We should be holding on to this statement at the beginning of this verse. But when the set time had fully come, God sent His son. All of the Old Testament church, everything that we have read to this point has taken us here to this moment when the time had fully come. From the curse in the garden. Implanted with the hope of one who would come and crush the head of the serpent to the promise that was given to Abraham that God would make from him a great nation and that through him all the world would be blessed from Moses through whom God would deliver the law and organize the people of Israel to David, who would be given the promise of one coming from his line who would rule on his throne From eternity, from the promise in captivity of the one who would give the people both the ability and the desire to follow God, one who would forgive sins and reform hearts and renovate behaviors to a little town called Bethlehem with an inn that had vacancy in an open stable where a baby would be born to a virgin and laid in a manger. When the time had come. As God had fully determined. He sent his son into the world. And we see his faithfulness. To keep his promises to us. And once again. We rehearse these truths. Over and over and over again. This time of year. Because we are reminded. Of God's great love. For us. Our God friends always remembers his promises. And in Christ there is hope, hope of freedom and redemption breaking in, shining as light in the darkness. The baby in the manger would be the very one who would make a way for humanity to be placed in a right relationship with the God of the universe. So God communicates and he demonstrates his love towards us, not just in the act of sending his son. Sure, that is a very significant and magnificent way that he communicates and demonstrates it. But he also communicates and demonstrates his love in how he sends Messiah to us. When God sends his son into the world, he sends him as one of us. It's a twist in the New Testament that none of the characters were expecting. We meet all of these people in the Gospels and every one of them is shocked that Jesus is the Messiah. Over and over again, he is not what they expected him to be. Many, most all, do not recognize him to be the Son of God. And we're reminded of the manner by which Jesus was sent in the Christ song that Paul orchestrates in Philippians. Speaking of Jesus, he says this in verses 6 and 7 of Philippians 2. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used of his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant And being made in human likeness. Friends, our wonder working God. Is demonstrating his love towards us. By giving up and sacrificing his only son. Wrapping him as God in the humility of flesh. And sending him as a helpless baby. Seeing him born into a desperate family. Jesus, who holds all life within him will share in the life of humanity. Think of the magnificence and the significance of what's happening here. The God who breathed and brought forth life sends life into the world so that he might give abundant life to all who believe. We heard it read this morning already, but it it bears repeating. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so God's love is communicated in his faithfulness to send a savior in the world and is demonstrated in the sacrificial love and humility of the savior that was sent being his only begotten son. But why did Jesus need to be born in the manner he was? And what was the manner in which Jesus was born? And Paul identifies these circumstances in our text by offering two distinctives in verse four and then giving insight in verse five. Take a look down again at verse four. God sent his son and then two distinctions born of a woman and born under the law. And so we see that he was more acutely born of a virgin woman, but we also see that Jesus was born under the law. Why would the Savior of the world need to be born from a woman? As you know, I was just thinking about this, I mean, he's God, he could have just materialized out of nowhere. He could have just appeared. He could have donned a cape like the modern superheroes that we see today and zoomed into earth with a tag. I'm here to save you all. That's not how it happened. Instead, he was born of a woman. And then we might ask, why did he come as a servant or a slave being born under the curse of the law? So one clear reason that Jesus was born as a woman, we actually see all the way back in the book of Genesis. Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God is speaking to Adam and Eve in the garden, and He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman when He's speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike His heel. And so we anticipate that the one that's coming to save will come from a woman all the way back from the beginning. But then again, in, a, in the prophecy of Isaiah, a prophecy that's very close to our minds in this season, chapter 7, verse 14, we see their words. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God keeps his promises by bringing forth the son in the exact manner which he said he would. And with this in mind, we're also told in the Old Testament that the Messiah would come from the line of David. And so when we open the New Testament, we find a genealogy in Matthew that shows us how Joseph, Jesus's earthly father, is connected to David's line. And then in Luke's gospel, we find how Mary, the mother of Jesus, is rightly attached to David's lineage. This order in verse four, friends, is also so important. The son proceeds his birth. God is born of a woman and becomes a man. Our salvation does not come from a man who becomes God. That was the testimony of many of those who lived in that day in the gods that they served. That it was possible for one. To become as a God. Or a God. Or like a God. That is not the narrative of Christianity. Jesus was with God in the beginning. And so the son comes before his birth. And this further highlights the supernatural nature of jesus's birth he's not like other men he existed before he was born now i don't know about you but that was not true of me it was true of jesus Not only does Jesus come as an infant born of a woman, but it's also amazing that when he comes, he's laying down his rights and his freedoms as God to come as one under the law. And so Paul continues to explore this in verse five. Look down again. He's born under the law, verse five, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as sons Paul described the law as the ministry of death. Those are his words. He uses those words. The law was the ministry of death. It was able to reveal wrath and bring condemnation. But there was no one who existed who could act on their own power who would be able to fulfill it or complete it but one. His name was Jesus And he lived in a manner that completely fulfilled the law exactly as God intended for it to be. For those who believe, Jesus is able through his sinless life, his atoning death and his victorious resurrection to purchase our redemption. Buying us back from the clutches of sin and death, declaring us free, giving us a new life, reforming us as new creations in his name. In Christ, we're adopted into the family of God, given the right to be called his children. These truths are rehearsed for us in John chapter one, verses 11 to 13. Speaking of Jesus, it says he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. First John chapter three, verse one says it this way. See what great love the father has lavished on us so that we should be called children of God. Friends, for those of us who are in Christ, who share that in common, we have been adopted in to the family of God. And this is a beautiful. And magnificent truth. And we're talking about love today. And how God demonstrates his love to us. Through the birth of Jesus. And I have to say. That being adopted. Is an incredible way. To demonstrate love. In our lives. We have had uh, the joy Um, And the privilege of welcoming children into our family through natural birth. And we've had the joy and the privilege of welcoming children into our family as adopted sons. And I want you to know, friends, that every single one of us in this room who is in Christ share in that spirit of adoption. We have all been adopted. Adopted. That's incredible. God chose us. He chose us and He drew us into His family. He came to us to be with us so that we could be considered as His children. And so Jesus is born in the manner that he was so that he could qualify as this once for all atoning sacrifice that would be able to purchase our redemption, freeing us from the curse of the law and giving us new life as adopted children of God. Paul goes on in verse 6 of Galatians 4 to tell us about the gift that we've been given as God's children. One of the many gifts, as we know we're given many gifts in Christ Jesus. And ironically, it's another gift that is sent, but this time it's a gift that's sent into our hearts. Look at verse 6 of chapter 4. Because you are his children, God sends the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, friends, God is still with us. He's still with us today. We are not alone. His spirit abides with us and dwells in us. If we are his children, children of God, then God is with us. This title defines how we relate to God and this title, Abba, Father." And we find that it's a title that Jesus also used. Isn't it amazing? Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. In Mark chapter 4. Before he 14. Before he goes to the cross. He's in the garden of Gethsemane. And he's speaking with his father. Asking him if it be his will. That he let the cup pass from him. And what does he call his father in the garden? How does he refer to him at the beginning of the prayer? Abba, Father. We get to refer to God by the same name that Jesus referred to God. This is beautiful. I'm reminded of a time, I I remember, um, one of my mentors is very good at making me feel foolish. Everyone, Everyone needs a mentor that's good at making them feel foolish, by the way. I think that that's really... An important characteristic. A good mentor won't let you feel foolish for too long. Um, And I was in a cafe one day with him and we were having a conversation. And very matter of factly, he looked across the table and he said this. How do you know that you're a child of God? (laughs) What do you mean? Well, here I am, a pastor who served in ministry for over 15 years sitting here at a table. And he's got the gall to ask me, how do I know if I'm a child of God? So matter of factly, and so I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, I'm going to give this guy the most deepest theological best response I could ever think of so that he knows that I really know that I'm a child of God and I'm stammering. I'm sitting there at the table, I'm falling over my words, I'm getting lost and, and trying to show him in the Bible how I know and all these different things and he's sitting there with a smile on his face and he knows I'm being foolish uh, and he knows the answer And when I look up, I realize that I am not going to be able to give him the answer that he's looking for and that in all of my desperate stammering uh, that he wants me to relinquish my anxiety and understand this. He looked at me as he gently left me off the hook and he said. When you pray. What do you call him? How do you know today, sitting here, at Calvary Monument Bible Church, whether you're in the building or with us online, how do you know today, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you are a child of God? Perhaps one of the clearest responses to that question could be, when you pray, do you call him Father? And when you call him Father, do you mean it? Is he really? Is that how you see yourself? Is that how we truly see ourselves? As adopted sons and daughters into the family of God. Do we truly look to God in our prayer life? And when we refer to him as father. Is that truly the way that we see ourselves in relationship to him? That he is our father. The Bible describes him as a good And a gracious father who desires to give his children wonderful gifts. And he's done that in the person of his spirit. God with us today. He's done that in the gifts that he gives us to edify and build one another up in the church. And he does that in the gift that he gives us in community. In drawing us in relationship with one another Beautiful gifts. Every relationship, friends, in our lives, every single person that God draws into our lives is a gift from Him. Somebody that He desires to either use to help us grow or He desires for us to use to help grow. There's relationships. They're there with a purpose. I love how Paul says this again in verse seven, but then I also want to go to where he says in Romans eight, because he says it very similarly. You are no longer a slave, he says in verse seven, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Now, he says it this way in Romans eight, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. There's that Abba father again coming in Romans eight, verse 16. But watch what he says in verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. When you think about this, friends. We move to the final question that we're exploring in our time together. It's a question that moves us towards application of an understanding of how we might live these realities out. What does it mean for God's people, the church, to be identified as co-heirs with Christ? Think about the parable of the prodigal son. What did it mean for those sons to be an heir there's one in the text that represents the Gentiles, those who are like us, that don't have Jewish backgrounds. That son, what does he do? He goes off, squanders everything, loses everything, and then comes back to the Father. The Father receives him and puts him back in a right relationship to himself and his estate. But then there's a son in the text. Who might represent the heirs, the, those who saw themselves as Jews and rightfully aligned for the promises. And he gets a little upset and indignant, doesn't he? I've been here all the time, Dad. I never left. I never misbehaved. I didn't do those things. And what does the Father say? It's all yours. It's always been yours. You don't have to fight. An heir receives an inheritance. That's what an heir receives. And we've been told that in heaven there is an inheritance that is unfaded and incorruptible that's been set aside for us. And while we hold on to that hope of future glory, we're reminded that while God has us here, We are here on earth with great purpose and to be identified as co-heirs with Christ here on earth means that we are going to share in his sufferings so that later we might also share in his glory. Jesus alludes to this reality over and over and over again in his ministry. And we've we've explored this throughout the Advent series together Jesus wants us to know in the Gospels that discipleship, friends, following him is not going to be a pie in the sky cakewalk. It's not going to be easy. If anyone come after me, he must take up his what? Yeah, that cross, right? Take up your Cross. And we said a few weeks ago that the pattern of our lives here on earth is cross shaped. That the cross informs the way that we are to live and move and have our being in this world. We should expect the sufferings that exist here. And we should walk in those sufferings with great hope. With great peace with great joy and with great love, knowing that our future inheritance is secure and kept in heaven for us. Friends, some of the suffering that we see in this world, it happens at a distance. Brothers and sisters persecuted all over the place for the sake of the gospel. Other forms of suffering are near their sickness. Some of us have experienced disease. Some of us know death in these days. It's very close to us in these seasons. Some of us know of broken relationships. There's been financial loss. Job loss. Some of us have experienced barrenness. Some of us have wayward children. And the like. We see today all around us there's bitterness. Don't. Don't. Turn on the news on Christmas. Can we do that? Can we on Saturday just turn it off? Let's just do it. Let's just not watch it, because we know that it's going to be filled with bitterness. It's going to be filled with brokenness. It's going to be filled with division, with hatred, with suspicion, with anger, with hostility. And all of this is very hard. And sometimes, church, we feel hopeless and lost and without answers. Sometimes we're a bit fearful, maybe anxious, certainly uncertain, perhaps ourselves a bit bitter and angry at the circumstances we found ourselves in. And at Christmas, God's people are reminded that Emmanuel has not left us to suffer on our own. He is still with us. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. We are his church, a people brought together from every nation, every tribe, every language throughout the world. He's called us unto himself. In these days, he's chosen to use us, the church, as a primary agent through which he is working out his purposes in the world. And so he equips us and indwells us with his spirit and he calls us to live out our suffering here on earth as salt and light. Something must look different, friends, by the way we live in the example of our lives. And if we're uncertain about who we can look to for an example in these days and seasons, if you're scrambling, if you're thinking Well, how do I do this, Lord? I'm so mad. I'm so angry. Our family's divided over masks and vaccinations and all this political nonsense going on. We can't even get together for the holidays. Two or three people start talking and it just goes off on a tangent. And I want to leave the room and go to another place and be all by myself. And there's all of this turmoil and unrest. How am I to do it? How am I to live? How am I to be an example for Christ in those places, in those very circumstances? Paul doesn't leave us hanging, friends, he gives us an answer, a clear, resounding and I believe very compelling answer. It's one that should motivate us. It's one that should guide us. It's one that should direct us this holiday season as we gather. And we celebrate with family and friends. Our attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant or better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. Take it to your family functions. Take it to your holiday gatherings, to your workplace functions. Take this mind everywhere you go this holiday season. Live it out. Think it out. Breathe it out. Make this a part of your life. Jesus. Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, therefore, therefore. When we live this way, friends, there's a great reward that's set before us. We don't need to fight. We don't need to win arguments. We don't need to make a point. We don't need to justify our actions or the reasons by which we do things. Because our reward is not here. Our battle to win is not here. There's nothing that here can take from us that God has given to us. If God's given it to us. No man can take it away from us. And so as Jesus lived this way, laying down his life for his friends. Giving up his life. Verse nine, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord To the glory of God. The father. The father. Isn't it amazing. That our father. Abba father. Sent us a savior. That lived like this. And isn't it amazing. That a few hundred years later. or So I don't know. I'm not good with numbers. We are called to live. In the same manner that he did. And it works, friends. It works. God uses this posture and behavior to draw men and women unto himself. It would be my hope for us this Christmas season that the love of God, as demonstrated in the life of Jesus, would capture our imaginations, that it would compel our hearts, that it would motivate our behaviors So that we might shine like stars in these dark and cloudy days. Our team will come to lead us. And as they do, I just would like to say to be a child of God identifies us as co-heirs with Christ. Meaning that in our days here on earth, we will share in his sufferings. So that in our corporate and shared eternity, we might also share in his glory. Church, I would say, let us live well, let us love well and let us suffer well for the glory of God and the good of one another this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your son, Jesus. We give you thanks for your goodness towards us in sending him into this world, for your love towards us in sending him into this world. For the way you demonstrated that love by sending him into this world as a child, as an infant. So that he would be intimately equated with all of the sufferings that we experience here. And yet he would suffer himself even more. And Lord, we find great hope in his work. We look to the cross As a pattern for our lives. And we pray that we would understand. That true discipleship. Is found in the forms. Of being broken with one another. And poured out with one another. For your glory. And one another's good. Help us do that Lord. Help us live in this manner. Help us share the same mind that was in Christ. In Jesus name. Amen.